Hey all, my name is Brad Baldwin and I'm the community pastor at Trinity. I want to thank you so much for your interest in learning more about the intersection of faith and justice, especially as it pertains to the exploitation of women in our city. I'm excited for you to listen and to learn more about the prevention of women entering into the sex industry and then the rehabilitation of women who are trying to escape that world. And you're going to hear from our respected and trusted partners at Street Grace, who's uh, led by Kamala Zulfagari and a beloved led by Amelia Quinn, and they share with us uh, remarkable insights and details um, and both how the world works in treating women as commodities, but also what we can do um, to help change that. So I encourage you to listen, and as always, at the end, we have an open Q&A in which the participants were able to ask questions uh, to these remarkable leaders, and, uh, and hopefully we learn together on how we can continue to live into the components of a flourishing community and our roles in aligning our gifts with God's redemptive work. Thanks so much for listening. All right, y'all, good evening. Um, if you've never been to uh, Trinity uh, Faith and Justice Night, let me tell you a little bit about it before we begin our evening. First, my name is Brad Malden, and I'm the community pastor here at Trinity. Um, and uh, what that means for us is, as a church, we try hard to help people get connected to one another um, within the community uh, to find a sense of connection. So if you call Trinity home, uh, part of my job is to help you find a sense of home, a sense of belonging here um, in a sense of community and the relationships that are so important to us as we grow and change and are formed in the image of Christ, we know that takes place in the context of relationships. Um, but for us, we also connect uh, turning outward uh, to the mission of the church. And we sense community is that responsibility as well. This reality of growing in Christ-likeness um, is an important part of our own life with the Lord, but it always happens um, and it doesn't just settle on us, it's meant to pass through us. And so we naturally grow and turn outward as we grow in our maturity in Christ. And so for us, we want connection inside the church to naturally lead to fruit outside the church. Uh, the way you may hear it say, said here at the church, if you've gone to Trinity, is uh, we, we think we should matter to our city. We think the, sh the city should be better because Trinity exists. We should be a blessing um, to the world around us. And if we got hit by a bus collectively one night, uh, the city should mourn our loss. And so what we know is we have to take our own formation seriously in that regard, but we also have to take our own sense of engagement and alignment um, with the redemptive work that God is doing not only in us, but around us and align ourselves with that work uh, and to be able to live with uh, intentionality and with uh, sincerity in the way that we align who we are and the gifts that God has given us uh, to join the redemptive work he's doing um, around us in our community. And so the Faith and Justice Nights are built around that. They're really built around this opportunity to learn and discern, uh, to learn about the redemptive work that God is doing in our city. Um, and, and sometimes you'll hear us talk about that as a, a sense of flourishing, like when a community is healthy, it's flourishing, it's in essence designed to do what it was designed to do, and it's, it's being who God made it to be. And what we know in communities is that there's a lot of components to a community that makes it flourish. Um, things like housing, or access to education and healthcare, equity as it revolves around access to these important ingredients to life are an essential breathing part of who we are as a community, what makes us healthy in a community. And the reality is, is when one of those is failing, it fails everyone. Um, you and I may not experience the reality of those failures in the sense that we may be buffered from a lot of those realities, um, but it doesn't make it any less true that the whole community is suffering because a part of that community is suffering. Um, we know that specifically in the context of family. Um, everybody comes from some level of family and what we see so true at the individual micro level family. Uh, like when one member is hurting, the whole hurts, everybody feels it. That is true at the macro level for community as well. And so for us, we want to have these conversations around faith and justice because what we know is our lives are meant to bear fruit. And any time a part of our community is not flourishing, 
That's an issue of justice. It's an issue that God wants to heal and redeem and to make right and to make straight again. And so we as a community want to have these conversations openly and honestly. Um, We know that at certain levels, depending on the topic, it'll touch you in a more personal way. Um, It may agitate you in a more direct way than other topics. Uh, And I have no idea to predict who that will be and in which ways tonight's topic um, will press into you. Um, But what I can promise you this is you're going to learn something tonight. Our partners that we work with at Beloved and Street Grace um, are amazing women, amazing leaders, uh, doing remarkable work in the field of redeeming uh, women who have been exploited and commercialized um, and manipulated and coerced. And they do remarkable work in helping women avoid that outcome. And if they are in that outcome, helping them heal from it and to find redemption in a new story. So I have no doubt that you're going to learn from these women tonight. Um, But what I'll also imagine is that you are going to be like twisted a little bit. Like the Holy Spirit, I think, is going to do something in you that will stir your heart in ways that may surprise you. And so when I say that you're here to learn, you're going to do that, but also to discern. Um, And something may grip you in a way that will surprise you. And all I can ask you to do is to consider that that may be actually a nudge from the Lord himself asking you to move yourself to join his redemptive work, to align yourself with his redemptive work of healing and wholeness uh, for the women in our city who've been exploited and used. And I don't know, again, how and what form that will take, um, but the part of the hope of a night like tonight is that you will have an opportunity to hear from leaders in this work um, and maybe be moved to join the work that they're doing. Um, at the very least, you'll learn about the work that they're doing and you have an opportunity to speak with them afterwards as well. And so tonight, the way it works, um, we have our roundtables here. You're going to hear from each of them for about 15 minutes, uh, and and they will then direct you uh, with some questions where you'll have an opportunity as a group, as a table, to be able to talk openly about these things. Uh, We know that most of you are strangers to one another. Um, That's why you have name tags, because now you're no longer strangers, right? And you can say whatever it is you need to say. That's the most personal, intimate thing you'll ever share in your entire life. Um, Obviously, share what you're comfortable sharing. There's no pressure. Um, But what we love about this is that on Sundays for us, um, if Ashley or Chris says something that irritates you, you have very limited opportunity to ask any sort of question. And Ashley, who's here, would never say anything that ever irritates anybody, right? A terrible example. It never happens. Um, But you don't get a chance on Sundays to be able to say, hey, I don't understand what that means, or I disagree with what that means, or that says and lands in me in a way that I'm not sure I understand, or whatever it would be, What I love about these evenings is you can't go wrong because if you are open-hearted to this, um, it's going to stir things and press buttons that you get a chance to lean into and unpack at your table. Um, But then at the very end, what we'll do after both speakers have presented and we have chances for Q&A, I mean uh, chances for discussions, we're going to have an open floor Q&A. And you have some cards on your table. And as the night goes on, write those questions down. It can be any question whatsoever. And at the very end, uh, Kamala and Amelia will come back up here and I'll just curate a time um, of open Q&A. And so you have a chance to again, to wrestle with the questions that a night like tonight stirs for you. So we're very privileged um, to be able to have the two speakers here tonight who are here, uh, Kamala Zolfagari, Amelia Quinn. Kamala works with Street Grace. Um, I'll let her explain exactly what she does because to be honest with you, I probably would butcher it. Um, Kamala is uh, a remarkable woman, um, has been at our church for a very long time, has been working in this field for a very long time in a lot of different ways too. Um, which is something I really appreciate, both on the prevention side, the policy side, the prosecutor side. Um, You've worn like 48 hats in the 10 years I've known you, Um, and so I'm excited to hear uh, from your perspective what preventative work looks like. And then Amelia, I will get a chance to introduce you in in a few minutes, Um, works with Beloved, uh, which is kind of on the rehabilitation side of this issue. 
Um, so, Kamala, thank you for being here. So, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute honor. Again, my name is Kamala Zulfagari. I'm executive director at Street Grace, but prior to that, I was the Attorney General's Chief Human Trafficking Prosecutor. Before that, I led the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. And one of the reasons I find prevention is so key is because as a prosecutor, every case you encounter involves somebody who has already been exploited. And when we recognize survivors as people created and loved by God, created in his own image, we won't be okay to just wait until they're exploited and then get some kind of rescue and hero complex. But we'll want to stop it just like we would if it were our own children stop trafficking before it happens. Oh, this is what I want. Sorry. Nope. Click. All right. So I want to make sure, though, to start that we all understand what trafficking really looks like here on the streets in Atlanta and not what it looks like in Hollywood. Trafficking has nothing to do with the Atlanta airport. Trafficking has nothing to do with kidnapping. Trafficking has very little to do with foreign-born. It does not require any transportation or travel, and it looks nothing like the movie Taken. The movie Taken does not even make sense on its face. Cute girls be cute guys. Agree to go to party with cute guys. Getting ready to go to party and meet cute guys. Why would you then break into a hotel and kidnap them kicking and screaming? Let's talk about trafficking. Both labor trafficking, sex trafficking, labor trafficking, work compelled by force, fraud, or coercion. Today we're talking about what's happening here in Atlanta. Sex trafficking. Commercial sex, sex in exchange for something of value that is compelled by force, fraud, or coercion. In the last decade, I've been involved in hundreds of cases. I can think of one that was involved a kidnapping, force. If trafficking looked like it looked in the movies, we wouldn't have to have trainings about what is trafficking because People would know they had been trafficked. We would recognize trafficking if we saw somebody in handcuffs, chains, locked behind doors, or being kidnapped. But how trafficking happens is primarily coercion and deception. Fraud. Fraud. Deception. It's a lie. Hey, you can be in the music video. You're going to be a model. Oh, wait. No, but you don't understand. That's not how this industry works. You got to work your way up into being in this music video, but no, you can't go because you owe me for your hair and your nails and your clothes, and I've rented this place, and so you've got to work it off, and you've got to go in those rooms with those guys, and you've got to do what they say, and you've got to earn your money to make it up. Another case we had actually in Douglas County was, I love you, and I'm so afraid I'm going to go to jail if I can't pay my attorney. Well, this person actually didn't have a criminal case, so it was fraud. It was deception. But what was in the mind of the person who was trafficked? 
I chose to do this. If anybody finds out, I'm going to be arrested for prostitution. They didn't know that they were deceived. The majority of people who are trafficked do not recognize that they are being trafficked while they're being trafficked because traffickers prey on the most vulnerable. Not the person who's going to recognize this isn't right, but the person who was taught from childhood that this is your value, this is your worth, this is how the world operates, or this is just what you do for your boyfriend. And then there's coercion, which we see so much of. Hey, you know those photos you sent? Because I'm your boyfriend, and I told you that's just what girlfriends and boyfriends do. I'm going to show them to your mother. I'm going to post them online. Everyone in the world will be able to see them. You'll never be able to get them back if you don't do this. There's the, I know where your family lives. I know, I'll, you don't do this. I'll talk to your little sister. She'll do it. But when we're talking about kids, kids under 18, kids cannot consent to commercial sex. Kids in Georgia can't, under 16, you can't consent to sex. Under 18, you can't consent to commercial sex. We recognize that children are inherently vulnerable and they're not able to make these decisions. They can't actually enter an enforceable contract at all. They can't rent a car. They can't rent a hotel room. They also cannot consent to sell their body for sex. So anybody who sells them or buys that child is a trafficker. That's a ch whether it's a child that, you know, sexual activity in exchange for money, drugs, food to eat, transportation, travel, no matter how willing that child may believe they are, anybody who engages in commercial sex, sex in exchange for something of value with the child is a trafficker. But this is about women and trafficking, vulnerable women. So why am I talking about kids? Because the great majority of women who are being trafficked in Atlanta were originally trafficked as children. When I prosecuted, whether I was talking to a 15-year-old, 25-year-old, or a 45-year-old, when she told her whole story the first time that she was first trafficked, whether she recognized it as that or not, was between those ages of 12 and 14. Next slide. And it's, trafficking is a huge industry. In Atlanta, metro Atlanta area alone, it is a $290 million industry. Next. And you have to think about it as an industry if you're going to make a difference, if you're going to stop it, because that is how traffickers think about it. It is all about supply and demand, and the supply is our vulnerable. It is all about who can I most easily manipulate with the least amount of risk. You know, we've all heard, you know, people think trafficking has anything to do with the airport. All this time I've had two cases that all involve the airport. Why the airport and trafficking is associated? Three reasons. They've done an amazing job training people. Two, some of the law enforcement agencies around there have been very proactive at identifying it. College Park, Hapeville, South Fulton now but also has some of our cheapest hotels. So for traffickers who are thinking of people as commodities to sell, they want to keep the lowest cost of doing business. So we're gonna house the merchandise in cheap hotels, but that is rarely who they are being sold to because you have to have a certain amount of expendable income in order to purchase somebody for sex. 
Not all traffickers have the same business model. Some, very specifically, I'm going to put her in a high-end hotel in Midtown or in Buckhead because it's going to be a lot higher overhead, but I can sell her for $1,000 a night instead of $50 10 different times that night. And then demand. It is the demand, the buyer's that fuel the exploitation of children. Way too often when we think about trafficking, we're thinking just about the person buying and sometimes the buy, I mean, just the person selling, the person driving that kid, manipulating that adult, the person who has something they're holding over that woman's head that they're selling them for over and over and over again. But the buyer, we never use the word John because that's way too nice of a name to use for somebody who's exploiting the vulnerable. That is what drives trafficking. And while we're talking about that, we need to talk about pornography as well. Because trafficking, that sexual activity, commercial sexual activity, is not just physical acts. It can also be pictures. It can also be videos. So many people who are trafficked are also forced coerced into making videos, into taking pictures. Pornography also affects both the supply, the people who are being commodified and treated as merchandise, and the demand. The average age a child first views pornographic images is 10 years of age. And let me just say, we're not talking about centerfolds here, not at all to minimize the degradation and the exploitation in photos, but the two most common searches for pornography are rape porn and incest porn. And if your child doesn't, if you are not willing to talk to your child about what God created sex for, then what they're going to learn and normalize in their head is the videos that they stumble across while searching for something innocent. Females who consume pornography are more likely to be sexually assaulted and harassed. Males who consume pornography are more likely to actually buy and sell, exploit their peers. The largest consumer of internet pornography is between the ages of 12 and 17. So we are raising a generation that is ripe for trafficking, who are vulnerable because this is what they are being taught is normal by exploiters, by that person talking to them online. And then there's also the demand side of it, though. We know how addiction works. You need something greater and greater and greater to reach that high. And so if you need that greater and greater and greater to reach that high, which is not something you're willing to ask your wife for, and so you got to go out and purchase it. Because if you're single, you can get on Tinder. You can meet somebody at a bar pre-COVID. It's one of the reasons so much of the demand is those who, can't, who have become addicted to pornography. And in order to fulfill, to reach that high, they're actually having to purchase someone because that's the way they believe will be safest. I cannot go over all these numbers. I'd love to. I liked doing three-hour trainings, not 15-minute talks. 
But I do want you to look at them. We're talking about homelessness, marginalized, foster care, truant, substance abuse, runaways, previously sexually abused, huge vulnerabilities. And then the top one, access to technology. That same technology that's kept a lot of kids in school last year. Same technology that allows us to have safe meetings. It's the biggest way trafficking has changed over the last decade. When I was prosecuting in Fulton County a decade ago, almost every single one of my cases involved a child that was running from some type of abuse prior to meeting her trafficker. There was that first girl who was ran away from home, from the hotel her family was living in, because every time her mom went to work her CNA job at the hospital at night, her stepfather was having sex with her. She runs away. Somebody that first night said, hey, you've got something of value you can sell and I can help you do that. Most traffickers aren't that blunt. Most traffickers are going to say, I figure out what her need is and I become that person. I exploit that. She need a boyfriend figure. She need a father figure. It's not safe out here. Come back to my room. I will keep you safe. And maybe that first night or maybe a week later, I don't have money to pay for the room tonight, but you know, you can make life better for us. You know, you can prove to me that you really love me and that you're really in this. I'll, don't worry, I'll keep you safe. I'll stand outside the door. You just need to make sure you're bringing in this much money. In the last, traffickers used to uh, look for kids who are at the mall during school hours or who are out late at night or um, one guy we prosecuted would drive past the juvenile court over and over and over again looking for somebody who was waiting for MARTA. So we've got two vulnerabilities here. Kid involved in juvenile court system who did not have a parent there to drive them home. But he wasn't kidnapping people from that, Mar from that MARTA stop. He was saying, hey, you know, do you need a ride? He had other girls in his car. I got to take my girlfriend to get her hair done first, but then I'll drop you off at home. Just let me drop you at my house for a while. But now traffickers are continuously online looking for kids, looking for kids and adults who are vulnerable at the time. One guy was sending messages to 30, 50, 100 women a day on social media. All women wearing a tank top who had a two to four year old in their picture. Hey, your child's beautiful just like their mom. I know it's crazy, but you just never know when there could be a spark. If they responded to him at all. Hands up, thumbs up, actual conversation. Picture of a fistful of cash. Just sold my car for $5,000. I want to go out and celebrate. I'd love to take you to the mall. You know, nobody said hey, yeah, stranger, take me to the mall, but who responded was somebody who was vulnerable at that moment, at that time. We're trying to get our power turned back on. Maybe you could help with that. My mom was just, just lost her job. I don't know how we're going to pay rent. I just found out my, I'm pregnant. I think my boyfriend's going to kick me out. I don't know where I'm going to go. Can you help with that? Next slide. So over the last decade, we've served almost 4,500 youth who were confirmed trafficked victims. The number I want you to pay attention to on here is that 69% of those identified, fully identified, not suspected, children under 18 who had been trafficked did not recognize that they had been trafficked. That is just as common when we're dealing with adult women survivors because traffickers manipulate them and make them think it's their fault. I shouldn't have run away. I shouldn't have made him mad when he beat me up. 
I, I'll get in so much trouble. I shouldn't have agreed to do that. I shouldn't have lied and said where I was going. I shouldn't have talked to that person. I shouldn't have said yes that first time. And it is why training and learning about this makes such a difference. Communities that are trained make a huge difference. Since I no longer work for any government authorities, I can say this about four to five years ago, we counted cases in DeKalb and in Fulton. DeKalb had 40 open human trafficking prosecutions and Fulton had four open human trafficking prosecutions because DeKalb had decided to train their kids, to train their teachers, to train their school administrators, to train every law enforcement officer were proactively going to be known for stopping trafficking. Community members galore. Fulton officials no longer want to be known for trafficking. Ergo, they tell their officers, you may not work any proactive cases unless somebody comes forward and says, I'm being trafficked. We do not work trafficked cases in the city of Atlanta. Next time. So this is the what can we do. At Street Grace, we do our work under four areas, prevention, protection, policy, pursuit. Prevention is everything from youth education initiatives, youth leadership academy, training youths to be leaders in the fight against trafficking, faith outreach, business training. It's a favorite of mine, should be a favorite of Trinity. So we actually work with the Beer Wholesalers Association to train the 300,000 beer distributors across the country who get to go into places, identify trafficking, and safely make reports. And then, if prevention isn't the thing that makes you excited, then you should stop and think about it. We do all have different callings, and survivors very much need, deserve the gold standard of care. And Amelia's gonna talk to you in a minute about how they provide that care. But if you don't care about prevention, that's not your thing, might it be because you think of the trafficked person as someone other? Do they look other than you? Do they live in a different neighborhood? Were they raised with very different parents by very different values? Do they sound different? Do they not act the way you think somebody who has encountered years and years of trauma will act? Do they not cry out and say, help me, thank you, but rather they're caught, by law, they're caught with drugs in their car, guns in their car, driving themselves to a date, and when you ask them, is anybody making you do this, they tell you where you can go shove it, assault an officer, and run away. Do we care about that person who is a person, again, created in the image of God the same way we care about our own children, or do I have to unpack the vulnerabilities do we have to understand that our own children could also be at risk before we care about prevention? We believe that God like can fully restore and redeem the survivor. We also believe that God can fully redeem and restore the exploiters, though we fully also believe in the justice system. We also believe that God can fully redeem and restore technology. Go ahead. Here's TikTok, for example. So this is our Help Locker campaign. If you click again, it'll go. One forward. Um, 
and children are funneled to bigger trainings, more information. They can actually talk with the chatbot to learn more about protecting themselves and protecting their friends. And then, and they're done through HelpLocker. Help, help Go ahead. Okay, it's not gonna play anymore. But even though we are just launching this, thanks to our partnerships with businesses, in this case, BBDO, the globe's largest and most award advertising agency, it already has the count has 3 million likes. We're using meeting kids where kids are to help them learn about trafficking, redeeming technology, protection. We do have a 24-hour hotline number, and we do restorative care services with children, um, victim impact, case management, care planning. Next slide. Um, policy, legislation, and and making sure that it is survivor-led, that we are not, as policy experts, saying this is what we think it should be done, and then really exploiting that, calling in a survivor, hey, would you tell your story? Exploiting that survivor story for our own purpose. We have Advocacy Day coming up, and using some of the legislation that survivors have put forward to create the Justice Project. 90% of adult survivors have a criminal record, the majority of which was a direct result of their trafficking. So training attorneys to take on those cases on a pro bono basis to bring vacature. And then finally, pursuit. And a lot of our pursuit is aimed at the buyer of trafficking, the demand that fuels trafficking. We have an artificial intelligence bot. We'll let somebody else talk about the technology. But it intercepts when people are attempting to purchase kids, sends warnings, can be used by law enforcement to bring arrests, and then also sends messages of help, need help, suicide, depression, sex addiction, pornography, substance abuse. Because again, we do believe God wants to redeem and restore all and also, what better way to protect a child than to stop an exploiter before they harm that child? Questions? Um, I did write them on my phone. But basically, um, excuse me, why... How does trafficking look different than what you expect? Why might a survivor not cry out? Why do we need to learn to identify trafficking? Three-ish questions, but one-ish question. Learn to identify trafficking so we can provide support rather than wait and expect people to cry out and law enforcement to arrest people and think everything is going to be good, fine and dandy. All right, so let's repeat those questions. First question was, is trafficking look different than what you expected based on what you said tonight? Pamela, thank you so much um, for sharing the things you share. You've given your life to this, um, and it's a gift that you share your life um, with us and help educate us and teach us around these issues. So at 741, we'll take about 10 minutes um, and look at the people at the table and answer those three questions. Uh, how did trafficking look different than what you thought it would look like? Um, why would somebody not in this situation cry out and say, help, um, and say, get me out of this situation? And 
how may I be able to engage in this particular thing? So 10 minutes, and uh, we'll interrupt you guys after that. All right, y'all, I'm going to interrupt you. I know that you're probably in the middle of a conversation here, um, but want to keep the thing flowing here. Just a reminder, um, if you have questions that pop up at any point, um, just write them down on the, uh, the um, index card in front of you, and then throughout the night you can bring them up, or when Amelia's done here, um, we'll have an opportunity to collect them. And like I said, at the end, we'll have an open Q&A. Kamala, um, yeah, thank you so much, uh, again, for helping us better understand um, the big picture around this, um, in particular, um, we're going to dig in. I told her my question is going to be on that revisiting the policy side of things um, that I want to hear a little bit more about later. Um, things like little nuances, right? Like the, the Fulton County makes an administrative decision that actually has an impact in the lives of human beings versus DeKalb County, which is obviously like a political decision, um, an optics decision um, that I want to hear more about. Um, kind of how that A, riles you up because um, I know it does, uh, and then what we can do about stuff like that. So don't be shy um, to ask questions. Um, our second presenter is Amelia Quinn. Amelia is the executive director of Beloved. Um, Beloved is a, a ministry and a program uh, ministry that we partner with here at the church um, who does amazing work. Um, uh, truly, like there's the Mother Teresa's you meet in the world who like give their life to something, and Amelia is one of those people who has given her life um, to working with women and rehabilitating them out of uh, sex trafficking in the sex industry. Um, it is a gift to have you here. It's a gift to know you and a gift to be able to partner with you. Thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. Like, <laughs> like Kamala set me up so well, and then as soon as like Mother Teresa was introduced, I was like, ooh, that, that standard got a little high, but here we are. So Beloved Atlanta supports women that are escaping forced prostitution by providing safe homes and a two-year restoration program that equips them to create a new path in life. We have heard awesome statistics tonight, and I love, like, I was going to start as well by saying, this isn't the movie Trafficking. This isn't the movie Taken. So I feel like that really drives home the point. This is not what we think it looks like. And so that's where I want to start tonight as well by saying... While every woman that Beloved works with comes from a different background and has a different story, I want to paint a little bit of an overview of how we see these statistics come to life every day at Beloved. So the majority of women that Beloved work with have been sexually abused as children. Very few have not experienced sexual abuse from a family member or a close friend. By the time that she gets to an age where she's like, I don't have to put up with this abuse anymore, she'll run away from home. That average age is around 12 to 14 years old. This absolutely happens to boys and girls. Beloved only works with women, so that's a perspective I'm gonna speak of tonight. So she runs away from home. She's very quickly gonna be targeted by a pimp. Again, it's not going to be a kidnapping situation. It is going to be someone who's coming around her and playing off of those vulnerabilities and manipulating that vulnerability. So. Either I'm gonna be your family, I'm gonna take care of you, I love you, I, I'm here for you, you're not alone anymore. And if you can picture that 12 to 14 year old, that is exactly what she has been wanting to hear her entire life and she's going to easily fall into that manipulation. Could be a day, could be a few months later, something along the lines of, if you love me, if you care about our family, you're going to go out and sell yourself. You're going to perform this sexual act to take care of us. Could be for a place to live, could be for money, could be for drugs or alcohol. And she is forced into prostitution. 
Now, Beloved works with women over the age of 18, but the average age of our resident is closer to early to mid 40s. So by the time a woman has gotten to us, she has experienced 30 to 40 years of complex trauma. 87 to 89% of women in the sex industry say they want to escape but have no other means for survival. And when we hear these stories, we understand that. They've got no family to fall back on, a very like small or lack of education, drugs and addiction have been introduced, and a criminal record has been introduced. But Beloved exists for that very reason. We believe that every single woman should not only have a chance to survive, but we believe that they should be able to thrive. So because of this, we run a residential program. We currently have three residential homes where women are able to live free of charge for up to two years while they go through our restoration program. The program addresses addiction, it addresses past trauma, legal needs, medical needs, what education, what, is your employment, what kind of employment are you interested in, and we are consistently working to strengthen our program and meet the needs of this population. Every single day, I am amazed by the strength and the resilience that the women that we get to work with have. And not only the resilience, but the joy that they bring to us and to everyone around them. And I am constantly reminded of their unique gifts and their unique talents and value that they have to offer to the community. That when they are trapped in exploitation, it is not only them that are missing out, but our entire community is missing out. We have big dreams at Beloved. We want to continue to be able to serve more women, grow the amount of residential homes that we have until we can serve around 30 women at a time, because that feels like still a nice community, but a good group of women that we can um, work with. We dream about a community full of staff, residents, graduates that are all supported and gifted with the resources to pursue the, like, the life that they dream about pursuing. So whenever we talk about, that's kind of an overview of what Beloved is. And I want to talk a little bit about how our faith fits into that. There's some of you that will be here that you're like, anti-trafficking movement, sign me up. There's others of you that this won't be your thing, and that's okay because there's lots of issues for us to address. But I think regardless of that, this has a bigger impact on our faith and how we live our lives. So, <coughs> sorry, should have brought my water up here. When we talk about um, sex trafficking, it's kind of an easy topic to pull aside and put in a silo. I think Brad just said this, which I thought was so good, that you don't really have to convince, thank you, you don't really have to convince people that manipulating off the vulnerable and children is evil. Like, that's not, that's not an issue in 10 years. I'm like, people get a little squirmish talking about sex, but you don't normally have to convince them sex trafficking is an issue that you should care about. But I think whenever we take sex trafficking out of a larger social context, like social justice structure, and we don't dive into why this is happening, we miss out on what's really going on. And what is happening is, as was so beautifully put earlier, we live in a society that places a higher level of value on some people than it does others. 
And we see this play out every day. We see it in systemic racism. We see it in wage gaps. We see it in the objectification of bodies. We see it in having such a strong patriarchal society. We watch it as men and women are still afraid to come forward and say, I've experienced trauma or I've experienced abuse. We see it whenever we're unsure of how much we can trust the justice system and how much one's socioeconomic or race plays into that. And while, while we live in a society that elevates some and beats down others, we will always have abuse and we will always have exploitation. And I think that's where the role of the believer comes into play. When we saw Jesus, or when we read about Jesus coming to earth, we see him going against the very fabric of our society where he said the last will be first. He chose to spend his time with the most vulnerable, with the most poor, and he chose to use his power to elevate those that we had put the very least value on. So when we sit in a room like this and we talk about what can each person do in the role of exploitation and trafficking, I start to ask questions of what can the men in the room do to start to lower the wage gap? What can those of us that are white in the room do to work against the very system that so often benefits us? And then whenever we put it in this context of a larger social justice issue, we start to see that it's not just the person that's sitting in the counseling room with the person that's been trafficked who's making a difference, but it's also the person at the court steps who's trying to change laws and policies so that they benefit everyone. But it's also the person in the corporate office who's saying everyone gets a fair chance at promotion regardless of their gender, regardless of their race. And in this context, we all get to take little steps each day that start to show that we value everyone because we believe everyone was made in the image of God. And then maybe we get to stop playing out this role over and over again where we always have an oppressor and we always have an oppressed. We work at Beloved, we're all up in mental health. So I know this is much easier like said than done. I feel like one of my biggest takeaways would be what would it be for each one in this room to start with us, to start saying what role has privilege played in my life? What role, what role is my own hurt playing out on others? How could I maybe get in therapy? How could I read books? How could I start to heal? And then what would the ripple effect on my community look like then when I start to place a value on myself because I was made in the image of God and then that value gets to go out from me into others. I love these faith and justice talks. I think it just gives us a second to stop and say, how does my faith intercept with justice? My, my question that I would sit with tonight is, if I valued other people the same way that I believe Jesus values each person, what were the impact within my community, within my city, and in the country be? Now, I started this saying not everybody will be like anti-trafficking, this is it. But there are some people in this room that are like, sign me up. I want to get involved in the anti-trafficking movement. 
So for a second, I want to talk to y'all that there's some really practical ways that you can get involved with Beloved, from helping us with transportation to providing meals to teaching different life skill classes, or if you're like, I don't, I'm not looking to get hands-on quite yet. We have representation at events, we need admin support, and would love to talk to anyone around that. Also, I'm always gonna make a plug of one of our favorite ways for people to partner with us is to donate, for y'all to use your resources to invest in the lives and the future of residents makes such a big impact and would love to talk to y'all about that as well. Again, wanna thank y'all so much for coming out, for, for being a church that wants to take the time to figure out how do we pour into others? Um, y'all have poured so much into Beloved as a church and love that this just continues to be y'all's heart. And thank y'all for coming out tonight. I have them, if not, I can say as we do the slides. So I had three questions tonight. How does believing every person was made in the image of God change your daily behavior? What is one way you can use your privilege to fight for the rights of others? And if anti-trafficking is an issue that you want to get more involved with, what's your first step? And there they are. Okay, y'all, I'm going to interrupt you one more time, um, and we're going to switch to the kind of the open Q&A. So if you have questions on your index card, you just kind of run them up to me, and then we'll take maybe a 60-second, 90-second break, um, and we'll bring Kamala and Amelia up here, and we'll dig into these questions. So use the restroom real quick, get a cup of coffee, or bring these questions up front, please. All right, so if, if questions pop in your mind, you want to bring them up here, it's like fair game. You just can come up here and bring the questions if you want to. There's no, don't be shy. Thank you. Super cute, huh? That's my wife right there, not being shy. And now I publicly, y'all saw me put the first question is on top as hers. So I'll slide that around. Thank you. And Ashley's not shy either. <laughs> All right, so, um, well, obviously, there's a lot of great questions. We'll try to get through these questions, and I'll try to consolidate some of the questions. And then um, Amelia and Kamala have been so kind um, afterwards to hang around. And so if your question doesn't necessarily, if we don't get to it, don't be shy. Um, come up afterwards. Or one of the things that we hope for as part of these Q&As is this translation into action um, and to know that you now have access to, uh, honestly, two um, experts in this uh, field. Um, and two uh, agencies or two organizations that are doing remarkable work in this field. So this isn't like a, a one-time only special, like you now have access to our friendship and partnership with them um, to be able to engage. And the big thing is, uh, as we go through this Q&A, again, is about discernment for me. Um, it's about learning something that you didn't know and then discerning if the Lord has given you a heart for something. He's not going to give you a heart for everything uh, because we are not God. We cannot be everything to all people but he has employed you and equipped you with gifts in a particular way that he's calling you to align yourself with his redemptive work. And that may be in this field. If you're sitting here tonight, my question would be very curious to know if you um, do have a particular heart for this particular issue. 
Um, but the hope is that you would pay attention to it and to know that you're not on your own as you figure that out. And as you dig deeper into your life with the Lord and to know that as he moves you towards joining his redemptive work, that we are here as a pastoral staff and as a church to be able to help you get um, to lean into that space. Thank you. Mom. All right. So first question here. Um, what, for Amelia specifically, what does rehab look like uh, for the women that are part of Beloved? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have our program broken into three phases. First phase, we start to focus on restoration, partner with different drug and alcohol outpatient programs. We have therapists and clinicians on staff that work with residents. We've got case managers that help each resident figure out what are my short-term and long-term goals. And then we also address any medical or legal needs of each one of the residents. Um, second phase, a lot of those continue. So for the full two years, each resident is in counseling. Um, she's doing some sort of sobriety work as well. But second phase focuses more on education. That is, um, the only requirement there is that each woman has to have their GED by the time she graduates. But other than that, we really try to lean into like the uniqueness and individuality of each woman. So what's a career path you're excited about? And then how can we set you up on an education path that will help you succeed in that? And then the third phase is employment, which normally starts as a part-time position with the hope of it becoming a full-time position with a living wage and her having three months of living expenses saved up before she graduate, graduates and we help her transition out of the program. That is amazing. Um, and that's a two-year program, Yes, right? two-year program. Do most of the women stay in the Atlanta area or do they move beyond Atlanta from here? It depends a little bit on where their family is and the area that they're coming from. Our last two graduates stayed close. Um, few graduates before that they moved like either in the suburbs of Atlanta or um, like we get women from we have women from all over the U.S. but specifically all over the southeast and so deciding um, like what is the next best step for them. That's great. Um, this is probably a question oriented towards you um, is both kind of the Fulton County comment that you made. <laughs> um, in essence what can we do to influence policy as it relates the sex trafficking, and then maybe why, in your um, humble opinion, uh, would Fulton County have the policy that they do? Yeah. So absolutely. Oh, policy. That's a great question because most of all of our attention after tonight is going to be on. Turn it on. Should be. It's going to be on Advocacy Day. So Advocacy Day is when people come to the Capitol to advocate along with survivors for survivor-led policies. This year, one of the ones we are focusing on is employment for survivors. Right now, we have, um, we have laws that provide tax incentives to those who hire um, convicts, just basically mirroring that law to provide tax incentives with a lot of safeguards to keep it from being exploited, but who are willing to hire survivors regardless of their criminal record while we're working, of course, to vacate it. Why does Fulton County, Atlanta, really got tired about a decade ago of being known for trafficking? Atlanta was never number one for trafficking. In 2006, Fulton FBI 
listed the top 14 cities for trafficking and Atlanta was first alphabetically. But that began this myth of Atlanta's number one for trafficking and another reason is so many organizations were working on shining a light on it. Several mayors ago, Mayor Shirley Franklin was one of the first mayors in the country who said we are going to do something about this. Why are these girls being brought in and arrested and there are no buyers being arrested? for exploiting these young girls. So we have tons of rests from 2006. But it really makes a difference whether or not a community is willing to support leaders who want to be known for addressing it. Will you support your principal when trafficking is uncovered in your school because he's tr made sure all the teachers were trained to identify trafficking? Because it's going to be happening, it happens everywhere, where we get cases is where leaders are willing to be known for fighting it rather than that want, not wanting that to tarnish their reputation. So who we elect matters? Yes, very, very much so. And who you elect, what they care about usually has to do with what you want them to care about. There are certainly some principled leaders, but a lot of leaders want to do what their people want them to do because they want to get reelected. And so just raising your voice to say, we want to see more arrests versus we don't want this to happen. You know, Atlanta doesn't even have a vice squad. They haven't had, they secretly disbanded about six years. They have lieutenants who only recently learned that they don't have a vice squad. If you don't have an undercover squad, you actually can't work proactive operations to recover trafficking survivors. Has a follow-up question for clarity. Um, so, legislative versus maybe uh, executive or prosecu mm -hmm. prosecutorial engagement. Yeah. Um, what about policy? Those are they different? Do they work together? Or do they they work different, but the same. Legislators know you care about that. We care about trafficking, but not all legis and so they're not going to vote no on a trafficking bill. But there have been legislators very recently who said, we don't want to go after buyers. Why are we going after these buyers? They're just buying sex. So they'll just make sure the bill never goes for a vote. So knowing, understanding how policy works, the way we do all of our separate policy trainings, being involved, listening, and it is. And then the executive branch and electing district attorneys who want to prosecute trafficking and will prosecute the rape of somebody who could have been charged with prostitution the same way they prosecute the rape of somebody from Buckhead. It's really key. Like, how, so how do you know which district attorneys and people like that will do that? I mean, which I know it's our civic responsibility to research, but a lot of us don't get that far. Yeah. And so, well, and a lot of times it is, don't think that any elected official except for the darkest hearts, can't be swayed just by hearing from you and hearing that you care, about one out of 10,000 constituents actually goes down to their office and meets them. One out of 1,000 actually ever sends an email. So when you speak or you send an email and you say, I really care about trafficking or we really want to support more proactive engagement, it's like your voice is amplified a 1,000 times. So yeah. Look for records, 
Certainly support places where you see a lot of arrests because that means they're doing a good job, not because crime is high. And understand that and let them know you understand that. And then speak out because so few people do. In Congress, they'll say if they get three calls on an issue, it's a red flag issue, all hands on deck. We've got to all look into this because most people don't ever reach out because they think their person won't be swayed. That's good. It's a good word, um, especially you've seen both sides, right? Like you've been on both sides of that. Um, speaking of uh, maybe the issue of buying sex and prostitution, the question is, can you explain the difference between prostitution and trafficking? And then there was another question in there in terms of um, maybe in places in which prostitution is legal, um, what are your takes on that and how it relates to this particular issue? That's a low-hanging yeah, we'll fruit right there. there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so legally, the difference between prostitution and trafficking. So you cannot a child cannot be engaged in prostitution. A child, commercial sex of a child, that is trafficking. For an adult, if there is no force, fraud, or coercion, then that would be prostitution. Very often, people think they are engaged in prostitution and don't actually understand what trafficking is. Again, nobody held a gun to my, my head. So they're being trafficked and exploited even if they don't recognize that. Very intelligent question because there is a whole national movement to legalize not only prostitution, but the entire sex trade. Buying, managing, selling, and the people being sold. It's one of the things we are doing a lot of our policy work around is kind of combating that. Research has showed where that happens, say New Zealand. Um, it has been tragic for so many people and so many people who are exploited. Um, in Georgia, we're, we've got the lowest level of punishment for people in prostitution. And one of the laws that was changed in the last three years was when you buy or sell, even a willing adult, first time 72 hours in jail, second time a felony, recognizing that even if somebody believes they're being, believes it's consensual, despite whatever's happened in their past, if you are buying or you are selling them, you are making money off them being sold, then you, you're exploiting somebody vulnerable. So we've bumped that up from misdemeanors to real time in jail and felonies. Um, but we all need to pay attention. We think it can't happen in Georgia. We can't legalize this, but um, it does happen. And there is plenty and plenty of trafficking in the one county in Nevada where it actually is legal, not the whole state of Nevada, just to clarify. Um, so it's a hot topic issue. Another issue is um, our, uh, I think the mayor of LA will no longer um, prosecute buying and selling sex. And so these buyers who are buying, who are part of the industry that is fueling the trafficking of our vulnerable won't be prosecuted because of this conception that we should just legalize it and then all will be fine. And it does kind of tell somebody, this is what your worth and value is anyway. That was great. Yeah, I think it's the difference between trafficking and prostitution. It's so complicated because it is, again, we've said it's hard. Many times a woman does not even understand she's being trafficked. And so for someone to step in 
and be able to peg where the manipulation and the manipulation has started at such a young age and it's been such a part of every step of their life that that is complicated. Um, I love that Georgia has like some of the like, lo like best laws to protect like women and I feel like that is where I would continue to go where it, the, the man or woman that is being trafficked or forced into prostitution, they are the victim here, and yet we never can treat people like they are a commodity that can be bought or sold, and that should never be okay, and our laws need to represent what that means. Yeah, and going back to your connecting faith and justice, like this is a particular issue around like turning humans into commodities. Um, like you throw prostitution and legality out of it. It's like the question is, is that in any sense of God's economy, um, and in what way is that ever okay? Um, you know, not just around the sex industry. Yeah. yeah. Throw the Super Bowl in there. Because so right there, Super Bowl, Bowl and it's out of the car. <laughs> what do y'all think? So the question was, is there a connection between conventions, Super Bowl, um, conferences, stuff like that as it relates to trafficking and prostitution? Do you want to go and then I'll go? Or? Especially Fulton County's decisions is really what I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, trafficking, Super Bowl, trafficking and conventions, sure. More demand is coming into the city. Were people being kidnapped during the Super Bowl? Absolutely not. Um, law enforcement has shown in some instances a slight increase in trafficking during major conventions, major sporting events, when a lot of buyers are coming to town, a lot of increased demands. But there's also a whole lot more operations that are going on to uncover trafficking, which bleeds again right back in to policy. Because during the Super Bowl, you may have heard the mayor at the time say, we had no instances of trafficking within the city of Atlanta during the Super Bowl. Did not add that they had forbid the FBI and the other task force, human trafficking task force members from doing their proactive operations within the city limits. So Brookhaven arrested, I think, 30 different buyers. Other kids and adults were recovered who were being trafficked all around the edges of the city. So you really want to listen carefully, again, when somebody says it's not happening here, then say, why aren't you finding it? Yeah, I think it is. Everything around that is an issue of supply and demand. So I'd say it's more like people coming into the city um, and more awareness around it than, yeah, I, yeah. That's great. Um, as it relates to sex trafficking, um, what are some of the most easily recognizable signs of trafficking? Um, and connected to that, how do you help women understand that they have been exploited? The first you do. All right, great. Okay, so signs, you're often looking for some kind of control. Um, it can, or some type of change in um, resources. Uh, so the kid that suddenly, or the woman suddenly has their hair done, their nails done, their Gucci bag, and yet there's been no change in family income to where they should suddenly have been able to, you know, 
obtain those things. The kid who has a bunch of cash, the adult who suddenly has a lot of cash, or a second cell phone, or if you're at the doctor's, uh, if you're at a hairdresser, and the the man is staying there and watching her and listening to all she talks. Uh, when the doctor asks a question or the clerk at the courthouse asks a question, somebody else answers for her or law enforcement asks a question and she turns and checks before she answers. So signs of fear, signs of control, signs of making sure they're being obedient. Um, bunch of you have hotel room keys and you didn't just get back from vacation. It's not right after spring break. It can be a big sign of trafficking, changes in behavior, um, sexually explicit online, social media. There's a whole lot of, it, it's broad. Not any one of these things is, okay, you've got a tattoo, you're 17, you must be, have been trafficked. But when you look at the whole thing together, when you're looking at changes in behavior, when you're looking at resources that are unexplained, when you're looking at somebody who has run away or disappeared, um, and how did you eat? Where did you stay? Um, how did you earn that food? Um, when they come back, you know, about 60% of trafficking, trafficked children are still enrolled in school while they're being trafficked. So maybe the kid who is tired at night or really tired, or is coming late, or is there and checking in at homeroom and then gone for the rest of the day because they're being sold on their lunch break. And always lean towards reaching out to experts, calling a hotline number, asking questions, making a referral, because as one of my best friends from FBI always says, the best thing that can happen to him in a day is he gets a report, he goes out, and he finds there's nothing wrong with that child. Don't be afraid. It's the most law-abiding of people who are most afraid to call 911. If you ever ride along with an officer, you know other people that call 911 when neighbor blows leaves on the yard. Don't be afraid to reach out to the experts and let them go and evaluate the situation. Yeah. How to help a woman understand that she's been exploited. Like one thing, there is a reason that Beloved's program is two years long. It is so easy for us to try to swoop in and say like, Oh, you're being trafficked. Let me get you out of this situation immediately. But it is layers of complex trauma. And so we go at, go at it from the perspective of one, like how can we just get you safe and get your basic needs met? And then how can we connect you with a really wonderful therapist who is going to start unpacking that trauma so that we are able to slowly look at the layers of exploitation and start to like start to heal from years of trauma and wounds. So it's a slow process and nothing with trafficking is quick and easy, but that's why we need like deep long-term solutions. That's great. Uh, sort of related to that, one of the things I'm super excited about tonight looking out here is almost half the crowd here are men. Um, and the question is, what are the best ways that men can help uh, get involved and prevent trafficking? You go first and other. Yeah. So. I'm going to leave prevention to you. I'm going to say on the side of kind of that restoration, I think a lot of times it's easy to say like men need to step out of this. So for the past, I don't know, three to four years, Beloved shared office space with Redeemer Church, which is a church plant off of Trinity. And I watched Drew, who's the pastor of Redeemer, sit in the same room with the women that Beloved work with. And he slowly formed this relationship with them. And it was one of the most healing, um, restorative things that I had been a part of seeing that 
someone that they had viewed as unsafe or gender that they had viewed as unsafe for so long became a part of their healing process was beautiful and is necessary. Like in the body of Christ, we all have our place. And for us to understand like the safety and the protection of each one of us, I think, I guess as a man, I would say, don't be afraid to get involved. We need you just as much as we need like um, that maternal nurturing of women as they come in as well. And I would add to that, do that within the bounds of a trauma-informed program, not out on your own. Do it That's well. A great point. Um, but she's absolutely right. We absolutely do need men in this fight. One thing is just addressing the demand. The huge, 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 great majority of the demand that fuels this is male. About 75% of traffickers are male, about 25% are female. Policy-wise, that's a whole nother question because the number of those who were trafficked as a young kid, of course, is astronomical, near 100%. But also, you know, be a mentor, not only, you know, be, be a mentor. Boys are trafficked as well as girls. 16% of our identified trafficking victims are male. When boys are trafficked, they're more likely to face violence and to be trafficked to meet those basic needs, food, clothing, shelter for girls, love, safety, security, just as real emotional needs. Um, we have a survivor mentoring program that we do virtually with the Chatham County Court. So these are people who have survivors, adult survivor leaders who are mentoring kids who have been identified as trafficking victims who are within working within the the Savannah Chatham County Courts. And we have a male in that program and have still been unable to find a mentor um, for that Spanish-speaking person. Who haven't I talked to about this problem? But a mentor, because we are now reaching outside of survivors, can you mentor a youth who has been trafficked? Can you, but also, can you intervene and get to know a life of somebody who may end up trafficking their peer either through buying or selling. Can you show them what a godly man is? <laughs> um, maybe connected to that is this question is about uh, teaching our children to protect them uh, or help them and train them to be able to even see in their friendships the vulnerabilities so kind of around the mentoring idea as parents in the room or people who aren't parents who do have influence in the lives of children. What would you say to that in regards to um, ways to help children recognize this, ways to help protect them? Any advice? Yes. One, talk to your children. It is all about relationships. Our Keeping Kids Safe Online training is my absolute favorite one to do. It recognizes that kids, that the parents I'm talking to are almost certainly not as technologically savvy as the kids they're trying to protect. But it really isn't about how much high tech can you know, but it's about relationships. It's about conversations. It's never you have the talk. It's got to be an ongoing talk. If you don't talk to your kids about sexting, somebody else is going to say, it's not a relationship unless you're sending these pictures. They will normalize it. They will teach them. Now, we've already talked about the young age that people are seeing, but it is, it's about that relationship. It's about the kid being comfortable 
asking you questions, and it's also about the child being comfortable talking to you after they've messed up. Mom, I sent this picture that I shouldn't have. Maybe it was just a little bit suggestive, but the child was uncomfortable with it. And he's going to say, unless you send me the next one and you're fully nude, or the next one and it's a video, and the next one you're doing something, then I'm going to tell your parents. Children with their lack of prefrontal cortex can't see that long-term damage. They're only afraid of what's going to happen if that one happens. They need to have a relationship with their parents where they can say, I messed up. Help. Yeah, I think kids normalize whatever their experience is. And so they have to have adults stepping in and saying, like, this is what is good. This is not, like, this is not okay. I've talked to many women that the first time they found out that they were being sexually abused was at a school event when someone went over good touch and bad touch. But as parents, we have to be, we have to have that open communication and set our kids up to know what is safe and what is not safe so that they know they have a voice in that. That's great. On the, on the, the subject of teaching, um, books that you would recommend that would be helpful in regards to the issue at large or specifically um, to particular vulnerable populations or some of the vulnerabilities that you spoke on, um, what would be two or three titles that you think would be worth a read? Honestly, sensationalism sells in so a majority of the books, even if some of them probably have some decent content. Certainly their images on the front don't look anything like trafficking and be very offensive to a survivor and make a survivor think they're not being trafficked because their arms were never bound and they never had duct tape on their mouth. I do highly recommend training from experts, whether they're in person, we do them in virtual all the time. I mean, streetgrace.org, we've got a training all the time, whether it's policy, protecting kids, 101. But honestly, you know, there's some, there's some good books on international trafficking, but all the ones here, and very often the ones written by some of the groups in the Atlanta area, exploit the, survive, the story of a survivor without permission and raise money for a person who wrote the book, so I'm sorry, I'm blank. I'm a little bit blank on that as well. I, my two recommendations, I think, would be um, Father Greg Boyle, who runs Homeboy Industries out in California. He he's recently written one called like Barking at the Choir, but his first one, I cannot remember the name of it. I loved the way he talked about like the population that he worked with, and this idea of like I am not a savior, but but like. I, we are called to go to the margins, but the margins changes me just as much, even more maybe than I came in to change. I thought that was an excellent book. And then my, yes, thank you, yes. Would Sorry. recommend Tattoos on the Heart. I loved that one. Another one that I really enjoyed recently was called My Grandmother's Hands. Not about trafficking either. We're not, we're not knocking it out of the park with trafficking. But it has to do with um, like racial trauma and how that plays out on each one of us and really starting to take a look at like what vulnerabilities around racism looks like. And our entire team went through that together 
and started to re like look at, okay, like how is exploitation and racism intertwined and what is, how does healing from, from both of those start to affect this issue? So those would be my two books. That's great. It's like Oprah's book club up here. <laughs> well done. Um, yeah, two, two last questions here. One, uh, I love this question just because it feels like a sense of hopefulness. Have you come across buyers who have either repented or helped government agencies after changing? Yeah, we actually have a buyer who did a, a video for us um, about why, what he thought, um, how he you know, thought he could get away with it, how it started, and then where that repentance point came and changed. He does speak to buyers, he speaks on the risk, he's been a longtime supporter. Um, another very famous buyer who, if you ever get a chance to hear him speak about this, is Terry Crews from 99 Precinct. What's that? Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you, 99 Precinct. Um, he, was, he has talked in multiple events about how he was a buyer, how he got convicted of what he was doing and how he was engaged in exploitation and, and how he speaks out about that. Google him, it's worth, a, it's very moving. Oh, one of our um, donors is someone that I've worked with that um, used to be a part of exploitation and now is like looking, he's, he's not involved directly with Beloved, like we, are, we probably keep a little bit of a safer bubble around residents, but um, I love, yeah, getting to watch how he is like using his resources to pour into what he now realizes he was a part of. Um, this is not an example of a person, but so I, we've been longtime supporters of Beloved and early on in the pandemic, um, March of 2020, was that like 18 years ago? Is that right? Um, we, uh, I remember you sent out uh, uh, an email to supporters uh, asking for prayer for the women in your program because they had to do a lot of the rehabilitation. They had to shift that online. And that is a triggering experience um, for the women that you're working with. Um, and one of the things that stuck with me that was uh, very helpful in the conversation was the camera angle. Um, I don't know if you remember writing this or not, but you said one of the things you can do if you're engaging with women coming out of this uh, industry is like put your cam the camera up higher. Um, and so there's an eye level conversation taking place, um, which for me connects the dots in regards to the kind of the ills of, um, of pornography, not only as like fueling the industry, but the way it warps um, God's creation. Um, and then that slowly like deteriorates a movement towards the commodity or the commoditization of, of women and people in, at large. Um, so I know that that's not necessarily like apples to apples, but men um, coming out of pornography, uh, in, I think would be in my mind an example of men who take that seriously and come to a place of healing and moving away from the false intimacy that pornography offers um, is one of the ways that you can celebrate kind of men getting out of that industry, um, honestly, without even probably knowing that they're in that industry. So, all right, last question here. Um, as a nonprofit leader for both of you, so here's your like, this is great. This is like a little commercial in some ways. Um, what do you need to keep going and staying dedicated to your cause? Resources and partners and learners. So learning about trafficking, learning how to protect your kids so that it can be stopped before it happens and so those who are being trafficked can be referred for services. Partnerships, 
you know, beer wholesalers, uh, a lot of technology stuff, um, but other ways where you can think, what are my gifts? What are my skills? What is my company's asset? Who can I influence? Who can I train? I have to add, register and come to Advocacy Day <laughs> on the 16th. And then, um, you know, and then resources. It takes resources to do this work. We have a team of amazing experts. We've been able to add through the pandemic. What the heck? <laughs> now I'm done. A full-time a full policy person, a PhD researcher that makes sure every time we say a number that it is backed by evidence-based, you know, peer-reviewed data and research, that all of our programs are evidence-based, the number of surveys, scans, numbers, all this morning was collecting numbers, but making sure that um, chairman of our board is um, Choke Construction, Miller Choke from Choke Construction. He, that man is all about return on investment. He actually has a foundation, ROI. Making sure, you know, we want to make sure that we are having a real impact, not just doing what sounds good or what sounds flashy. So thinking about how can I make an impact, whether it's, again, being a mentor or being a computer programmer or talking with kids or being a therapist. And also, yeah, I'd say being willing to be support programs that are with people in the long run, two years, not just those who have flashy numbers. We rescued 5,000 people, you know, 5,500 people because it's not always all about numbers. So, boy, we're all about numbers in street case. It's also all about that inherent worth of that person and is there really are two really more better than do we need to do more or is this one person's value worth it can we affect one person that was beautifully put um yeah resources for us as well i think especially um people that are willing to like look at the long-term impact of resources so it's really easy when we're talking about money for just say like yeah i want this to go directly towards the woman in the program which is great but someone that says i'm willing to invest in whatever the needs are of the organization and recognize the impact of that so i'm going to give a shout out to miriam here who goes to church was also on staff at beloved and she's our clinical director so when someone is willing to like pour into beloved and say like i want to provide salaries for the staff then someone like Miriam gets to come along and say, great, we're going to increase our clinical care throughout the entire organization, which will impact every single woman that comes here to make sure that she gets a higher level of care. Um, and then outside of money, there are there's so many ways where um, we have one of our partners um, is a guy who does like stuff with like neuroscience in the brain and how it affects the body. And he came to me and he was like, sure, I could give a donation or I could like give of my time. And every few months your team could come meet with me and I could pour out resources and we could partner together. So really starting to look at like, great, what is like, what is my gifting and how can I use that to pour into this? Um, if it's like, yeah, I work at a company that's starting 
Like we have tons of job openings. How can we partner with Street Grace and figure out like what it would look like for us to be able to employ women that are coming out of sex trafficking? That's so impactful. So yeah, it's such a wide variety of ways that you can use your gifts, use your resources and really make a difference. That's amazing. Um, Y'all, Kamala and Amelia, thank you so much uh, for the gift of what you do. Uh, Like I said earlier, for both of you introductions, like you've given your lives to these things. Um, And you model for us, uh, I think, in my humble opinion, um, what the Lord would call us to do uh, in regards to joining in his redemptive work. Um, And the the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, what is that redemptive work um, that my heart breaks for? Because um, it will not be for everything. And you do not need to feel bad, uh, personally, if the idea of women who have been trafficked um, does not break your heart. Um, because there will be somebody to your left or to your right who it does. And that's how the kingdom of God works. Um, he wants us to care about these things broadly, yes. Um, but specifically to be able to engage. Um, know that you're going to be prayed for um, moving from this time on in the work that you do. Um, and you have like our love and our support, obviously. Um, so thank you for your time. I know you have busy lives and you're sitting here at 8.56 on a Monday night. So y'all, please thank them um, for their time and their energy. So good. Excellent. Let me pray. Um, God's blessings over our time and then we'll head home. Father, we thank you uh, again for Kamala and for Amelia. Uh, Lord, for Street Grace and for Beloved. Uh, Lord, they're doing your work, uh, your redemptive work, uh, Lord. And they have not cornered the market for sure. There's so many people, uh, Lord, who are joining this work. Uh, and tonight, Lord, we uh, take a moment and ask that you would energize those people. Lord, you'd bless them. Um, Lord, that you'd protect them, uh, provide for them, Lord, the resources um, that they need at Street Grace and Beloved and Beyond, uh, to be able to lean into uh, the realities of the brokenness that are around us, uh, Lord as it relates to vulnerable women and the exploitation of these vulnerable women. Uh, Lord, help us see specifically the ways that we can uh, engage and come alongside these efforts and these works. Uh, Lord, equip us um, not only with uh, the hands and feet to be able to do things, but Lord, also the wisdom to see clearly the things that you've given um, us a heart for. Uh, Lord, help us understand too the, the maybe the hidden ways that we support brokenness in the world around us. Um, like Amelia's question was earlier, in which ways do our privilege invite us to uh, to make a difference, but also in which ways do our privileges uh, kind of blind us uh, to the brokenness around us, Lord? And so we ask for your grace to see those things more honestly and more clearly tonight, Lord, knowing that you um, are good and loving Father, Lord. Uh, you move uh, with patience towards us, and uh, Lord, we ask that you would move towards us um, with your grace and your mercy, Lord. Bless Amelia and Kamala with your peace and your provision, Lord, and your joy tonight. Um, Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room and ask you uh, would go with us tonight. Uh, bring us back into our homes and give us fruitfulness in the world and the lives around us, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. God bless y'all. Thank you so much for being here. If you have questions, I know um, that these two ladies are here um, for the time being um, to come up. And if you ever need to get connected to them, know that you just got to reach out to me at any time. Thank you, guys. Have a great night.